0: Thank you, Nick. As I begin, I want to just extend a special welcome to someone who has traveled the furthest. Uh, Andrew uh, Atia is here with us. Wave, Andrew. <laughs> uh, if many of you, uh, many of you know his parents, uh, Fozzie and Linda, uh, who are serving in the Middle East, and uh, Andrew has has come to the United States raising support for uh, what he's going to be doing in London, England, and so uh, it was excited, it was good to get to sit with him last night and to have dinner with him and hear what he's doing, so uh, after the service, uh, please make yourself known to him, so it's, uh, it's great to have you here with us, Andrew. As we open up this word this morning in uh, Romans chapter 9, one of the things that I want to I want to make sure that you know as we, as we delve into these verses that this is not the last word on this subject. Uh, this, the, the rest of this chapter we're going to cover uh, through uh, verse 18 today. Um, and then we thought it would be a great Mother's Day text. No, i just keep teasing. Uh, <laughs> we'll take a break. Then we'll jump back into Romans 9 uh, after that. And so we're going to spend several weeks here. And I say that because there are several implications and arguments and loose ends that as a, as a pastor you feel like you are constantly chasing to try to tie up and all those will not be tied up this morning. But, but I want to start with asking the question, and I think there's two answers, of why I dig into this text? This is a hard text. Uh, some find this text very divisive. Uh, it leads to a lot of questions, and I want to start this morning by saying that there's two reasons why we feel like it's important to dive into this text. Number one is that we are committed to and believe that expository preaching is the only kind of preaching. Now, we could have a whole sermon on what is expository preaching, but suffice it to say that expository preaching is where a, a pastor looks at the text, so, so Gary and I, we look at the text, and what we attempt to do is to bring you the text and explain the text, not just bring you our ideas or our thoughts. And so the goal of expository preaching is to, for the intent of the author to be brought forward as primary, and the intent of the Holy Spirit for why he inspired this text and has it in our Bible for that to be brought forward as primary, so that Gary and I are just messengers of what you have In the text, we also believe the reason that we stand on that is that we believe that all Scripture is God breathed and profitable, and that we have nothing to say on our own outside of this text. And so all Scripture is God breathed and profitable, even the texts that are hard. In fact, Peter tells us that Paul preaches a hard word. (laughs) And so some of you this morning as we read and as we explain this text may walk away saying that is a hard word. The second reason why we preach this text and don't shy away from it is the subject matter. And I hope you will see, if you've been with us over the past, this will be the third week in Romans chapter 9, one of the things that I hope that you will see is the subject matter here is the sovereignty of God. And, and, and a subject matter that deep and that weighty deserves to be preached and deserves to be taught because this tells us of the very nature of the God in whom we serve. And any time we get a true glimpse of God, any time we get a true glimpse of God, it puts us in our position, a position of worship, a position of awe, and a position of purpose. So... Those are the two reasons why we don't shy away from hard text. And so let's jump into this text. And I've got a little bit of work to do to get us to today because Paul is building on an argument. If you were here with us, you've been here with us, I have said that the thesis statement in this section is in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And Paul is addressing the question that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were rejecting the Messiah, and this is troubling not only to Jewish folks, but it's also troubling to us because if God is not keeping His promise to the people of Israel, then there's no guarantee that He will keep His promise of us or to us. So Paul argues, he unfolds in the, in the verses we covered last week, and, and that is, is that not all ethnic Israel, not all children of Abraham are children of the promise. And one thing he says is that it's always been that way. He's always chosen a remnant out of the whole. And the second thing that he says, and this is the more controversial thing, the second thing he said is that the children of the promise are chosen or elected by Him. Look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works but because of him who calls. So, this is Paul's argument up to this point, that God's word is sure because he causes it to come to pass. And we know we're on the right track with that interpretation because of the two questions that Paul asks in this text. And we're only going to cover one of those this morning. So look at verse 14 with me. As, as Paul has laid this thesis out, then Paul gives us verse 14 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? then? Is there no injustice? There is no injustice with God is there. May it never be. Now, this morning what we're going to see, this structure is easy and we're going to cover this question. And so Paul's going to tell us there's no injustice with God. There's no injustice with God. And there's two reasons why Paul is saying there's no injustice with God. The first reason, he says, we're going to see in verses 15 through 16, is this. Notice this, is that his election is based on his mercy. And then we're going to see in verse 17, and and it again is that not only is his election based on his mercy, but that his hardening is based on his decree, decree, decree for his namesake. And then in verse 18, it summarizes those positions. If you look at verse 18, and we'll touch on this in a minute, but, but notice. So then He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. And so what we will learn from this text this morning is that God is free. God is free. He's not bound to us. We don't back Him into a corner and force His hand, force His decisions. We don't surprise God. We do not manipulate God. He is free. He is not reacting to us. In other words, he is not unsovereign. God is sovereign. We're also going to see that he is free and that his promises will come to pass because his promises and his will and his decrees are upholding his purpose. And we'll also see, I hope, through looking at this text that He is good and righteous and He acts according to His will. God is free, but He does not violate His will or His promise. And if God did violate His will or His promise, He would be unjust. So that's where we are going this morning. And so as we look at this text, I want this to be in your mind because I want you to see this from the text. So in verse 14... We have, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Which which throws us back to verses 11 through 13, which we have referenced. What shall we say about these things? About these things that Paul talked about in the previous verses, where he says that I chose one of the twins over the other. And it was based upon my sovereign choice. And in the original Greek, this next phrase, I don't think we do it justice there's no way to do it justice, I think, in, in the way that we translate this out to smooth it over. But in the original Greek, it would read something like this. What shall we say then? Not unrighteousness with God. I think that captures more of it when we hear it in its, in its original wooden phrasing, not unrighteousness with God. And then you have an emphatic phrase there at the end. May it never B there is not unrighteousness with God in Deuteronomy chapter thirty two verse four The Rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is He. So, what you see from this text already this morning, if that is election or predestination were based on God looking into the future, seeing what my choices were going to be, and then coming back to some point and saying, okay, I'm predestining or electing you based on your choices, then this question and this line of reasoning would not make any sense to be here. He would just, Paul would have just said that, and, and this question would not be raised. But what Paul is telling us is that God can't be and is not unjust. His word stands, and if his word says it, then it is true, and, it is, and we must conform to it. Let's pray and go home. Paul doesn't leave us there. Paul plunges, Paul goes deeper, Plumbs deeper into this, and uh, I am going to quote a, a great man uh, who I call uh, Dr. GWP, Gary W. Phillips. And in, a, in, a, in, in, in some things that he wrote, he, he says this, and it's true. Think about this. That our minds are the three F's. That doesn't surprise you. Gary has three F's here. Fallen, finite, and futile. Last week, that's why we began with the end of chapter 11, which told us how unsearchable God's ways are and how we cannot understand and we, who are we to stand and to counsel to God or to tell God how He can and can't do things that we're the ones with the fallen and finite and futile brains. Paul doesn't leave us here with verse 14, and so we're going to look at the first of, of the two answers of why God is not unjust. And so let's look at verses 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God is not unrighteous in his election because his election is based on mercy. And I want us to allow this to sink into our heads This morning. What is mercy? What is mercy? Mercy is compassion or forbearance. Shown to an offender. Or an enemy. It's interesting. The verses I wrote down to. Talk about this morning. When it comes to this. John had us read. In the very beginning. I will read some of them again. Um, But in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Uh, Verses 18 and 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? all unrighteousness. Not some. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then in verse 21 in chapter 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And Romans 1 and 2 tells us how the pagan and the religious and the Jewish man without Christ are all under sin and all unrighteous and all ungodly. In chapter 3, verse 10 There is no one righteous, no, not one. And then in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so who is the offender? And who is guilty? All. All. Who is the offended party? God. So the big question is this. Who deserves mercy? No one deserves God's mercy. And in fact, when we read in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, we shouldn't be blown away that Esau and Ishmael were rejected. That shouldn't be what we get caught up, caught up over. What Paul is telling us, what should be amazing, is that Isaac and Jacob were accepted. It's this aspect of mercy that we tend to turn around and to dump on its head and we don't think about mercy the right way. The key here is that God's election is just because it's based on His mercy that's undeserved and unearned. 16 again. It doesn't matter. It's not those who runs or those who wills, but it's God who has mercy. And we said several weeks ago... That if we got justice, if we got fairness, what would we get? Condemnation. Wiersbe, uh, talking about these verses, puts forth this proposition. He said, let's say that you have ten people who were guilty of a crime, and a judge let one go free, and they were all guilty, was anyone treated unjustly? No. No one was treated unjustly. One was treated with mercy. And we have to understand the difference of these two things. Now, this reference in this text in verse 15 is a quote from the Old Testament for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And, and in 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 Exodus 33, 19, it's a really interesting passage. Uh, We could spend all morning just on this passage, but what I want you to remember and recall is that what is in view here in this passage is that Moses had come down off the mountain. You remember, when Moses came down off the mountain, what were the people doing? They had collected their gold, and they had made an image. And they were worshipping the image. There is nothing more treasonous in the universe than what was going on here. And we have this interplay that if we had time, we would go all into. But essentially, let's let's get these two points out of this passage. What would the just and righteous thing to have been done? What would that have been? The God Almighty had led His people out into the wilderness to save them. Moses goes up on the mountain, comes down, they're worshiping a calf. What would have been the just thing for God to do? To wipe them out. But yet, God doesn't do that. And later in a passage, where, later in this, in this account, when he's talking to Moses, Moses is wanting to see God's glory. He's wanting to see God's glory so that he can be assured. Uh, Moses believes if he sees God's glory, then God is going to fulfill his promises. And, And God, in the middle of this, tells Moses, look, I am God, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Did some of the people die in the wilderness as a result of worshiping the golden calf? They certainly did. And God is giving an account to why some died and some didn't. So the key is this. God owes us nothing. Nothing. We have zero claim to grace. But God freely shows and distributes mercy according to His will and His decree. And and I just want to stop for a minute and just ask you this question. Does this not blow your mind? If you are sitting here this morning and you have been saved, you have, however you want to phrase it, asked Jesus into your heart, placed your trust in Jesus, believed on His name, and you have a relationship with God Almighty this morning, does it not blow your mind that you are one of God's chosen? I mean, as Christians... We can't ever get over this. We can't ever get over this. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want it to blow your mind that in God's sovereign grace, you are here, and you are hearing the Word of the Lord. He he has brought you here to hear the Word of the Lord, and I want to ask you this day, this day, to turn from your evil ways and to trust God in Jesus, that you may too may be one of his children. God is amazing. Now, the first thing we saw, God's not unjust because his election is based upon his mercy. The second thing we're going to see is in verse 17. And let's read this, and this is the harder part of this. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then in verse 18, just in case we want to try to scoot around this verse and say he's just talking about Pharaoh, look at verse 18. So, then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And I do think this is the most difficult part about this section and these verses. And I want to start, I think in order for us to begin to understand what's going on here, we've got to start with this this phrase that is in verse 17. That my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What is the purpose of God? What is the purpose of God? If the purpose of God is very man-centered, meaning that God is somehow in service to us or that His purpose, His will, is somewhat tied up in um, us making much of ourselves, then what we would say as we looked at this text would be we'd have to find a way to kind of explain this away. But if, if, God's purpose in all that He does is for His glory or for His great name to be proclaimed, all of a sudden it starts giving us a category for by which we can understand this doctrine. Uh, turn with me, if you will, just real briefly to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, and I want to read uh, to you verse, verses 13 through 17. And listen, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people. Notice this, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have then been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power. And in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. The ultimate answer is that God, in all that He does, the most central meaning and point to all that He does is for His name to be proclaimed and for His glory to be set forth in all the earth. Now, what's interesting, if we read the whole account of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, we see these two things happening. At some points, the text tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. And then at other points, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we want to look at the text and say, so which is it? And what we say is, yes. And there is a logical explanation for this. Some of which we will talk about later in, in the preceding weeks. But I just want to point this out. Pharaoh never does what he doesn't want to do. Pharaoh is never acting Pharaoh never says, we never see in the text, Pharaoh say, I really want to let these people go so that they can worship their God. And, and, you know, I don't know what I've been doing. In fact, I want to go with them and worship God. I want to worship the God of the of the Hebrews. But there's something in me that's just not allowing me to do that. Pharaoh never says that. Pharaoh constantly hardens his heart against the word of the Lord. And he is doing what he wants to do. In fact, I want to use two other examples. And I won't read the text because of time, but in Galatians when Paul is talking about his testimony in in Galatians and he's talking about that he ravaged the church, Paul was doing exactly what he wanted to do in ravaging the church. Judas. Judas was acting in accordance with his nature. He was acting in accordance to what he willed to do. And in both of these instances, something amazing happened, right? Paul was persecuting the church, and therefore when God knocked him off of his horse, Paul wasn't seeking God, Paul knocked him off of his horse, Paul's testimony and street cred, God used that for his glory so that the gospel would go forward. Judas, we see a darker picture of things. Judas, according to his own will and according to the own hardness of his own heart, betrayed our Lord and Savior. And we see that is what Judas did. However, it was God's plan all along that Judas would betray Jesus and that salvation would come from the death of our Savior. You can't read the book of John and not get that from Jesus' very own words. But, this does not, I, what I don't want to put forward is to say that just because they were acting according to their will, acting according to what they wanted to do, it doesn't let God off the hook, as we would say, and that's what, that's what the preceding verses are about, and I just want to bring this out. Um, you know, when we talk about Pharaoh, for example, God could have put more restraints on him. God could have killed Pharaoh as an infant. Right? God could have called a coup, and the second in command in Pharaoh's court could have been sympathetic towards the Jewish people and let them go. But God didn't do that. God had a reason, and God had a purpose. And God was making His name great through Pharaoh's sinful disobedience. God was making His name great and His name known and His salvation being made to all who would call upon the name of the Lord by Jesus being betrayed by Judas. And God was making His name great through the persecution in the early church that the gospel would spread around the world so that you and I could sit here today because of God and His sovereign hand. So, verse 17 and 18, tell us that there is no injustice with God. That God is still in control. That Pharaoh, an evil man, resisted the call of God to let his people go, but that God permits, causes Pharaoh to resist for his glory. Our problem, I think, at least in my own heart, is that I don't know the ultimate plan of God and can't see it clearly like God sees it. In other words, I would like to be God. I would like to know what He's up to. When this gets really personal, when we talk about loved ones that don't know the Lord, is when my heart feels the most troubled by some of these things. And we'll talk about that in in the weeks ahead. So, what we see from these verses is that God is free in doing and designing as He desires, or or we're of the opinion that we are free. It can't be both. And and I want to lay out for you If God is bound by our decisions and we are free, who is God? God is free, but his ways are not arbitrary. The key here is that he's got a purpose and a plan for all that he does. God is free and his wisdom is beyond us. God is free and he exists outside of time. And so his plan is sure. God is free. And he's only restrained by his own promises and his own desires. Now. In the weeks ahead, we are going to talk about things like um, uh, these verses. uh, and, And then we have verses in the Bible where it says that God desires that no one perish. So how do you reconcile that, Pastor? That's what our Mother's Day sermon next week is all about. No, we're going to talk about these things. I don't want you to feel like we're escaping around some implications of some of these things. It's just that we can't get it all in in one week. And, and I don't expect all the questions to be settled this morning, but the key this morning that I want you to know is that we serve a big God, not a small God. We serve a big God that is merciful and that He is just and that His grace is sovereignly distributed to those to whom He chooses and that our response as believers with our with our fallen minds, with our finite minds. Is to worship and to say, God, I don't understand, but I am blown away by who you are. I I think I'm still going through this, I, I think maybe in the next couple of weeks, one of the things I may do is take a small break from here and preach on uh, John chapter 3. Nicodemus and Jesus. And uh, we're Jesus, John 3, 16, right? And the important thing in interpreting John chapter 3, verse 16, is that we need to be, you have to come for this, you need to be meteorologist. There's a very important point about the wind that we've got it that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying there to Nicodemus, but you have to come back for that. that. How's that for a teaser? Again, again, what I want you to see, and what I want you to understand, and what I don't want you to misunderstand me saying, is that who is arguably the greatest missionary? No, no offense to your parents. Who is arguably the greatest missionary ever? The Apostle Paul. What did he endure so that he could proclaim the gospel message and to say, be saved? Beatings, hardships, he risked his own life. Um, uh, just want to give you, last week I talked about Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 are right beside each other. There are no chapter divisions in the Bible. And so I believe with all my heart, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call if they don't hear a preacher? Uh, I want to jump to Acts just real quickly real quickly and also show you just so that you know I don't want there to be any misunderstanding in Acts chapter 4 let's read in verse 27 and 28 notice what is said here as Peter is preaching he says for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both listen to this who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. I believe that with all that's in me, and I also believe, and this is all over the book of Acts, but just to give you a stark awakening in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, and they said, Paul and Silas are here in jail, and they said, notice it's Paul and Silas, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. That they called them to believe. Believe. I don't think there's a contradiction in this. (laughs) So, is your mind hurting a little bit now? (laughs) Um, when you try to think about uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, um, does that make your brain hurt a little? Uh, well, okay. I, I just want you to know, I, I don't think this side of eternity, and, and I told Gary this week we were talking about this, I don't think this side of eternity, that we're not going to figure that out. I also think on the other side of eternity, we're not going to care. I think when we're in the presence of God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, I think some of these things that we get hung up on are just going to go away because it just doesn't matter. We'll be in the presence of our Savior. But for who we are, who we are standing here today we evangelize, and we evangelize with the call, whoever will shall come. And we stand in boldness to keep going, no matter how we're treated in that call of calling people to come to Christ, we stand in boldness because we are assured that the God, the sovereign God of the universe, is the rock underneath our feet, whose promises are sure, whose decrees come to pass, and that we don't get downtrodden when we make the call to salvation and nobody responds because we know that work is God's. So, today, today, I just want you to be amazed at this big, sovereign God that we have. And I want you to just trust in Him, and I want you to worship Him with all that you are, And I want you to go and make disciples because this work is sure and our God is leading us as we go. Let's pray.